very well known. Like I smoked a lot of his cigars that use Sumatra, so to actually have him be the one to utilize the Habana 2000 yeah. was is an interesting move. That's that's fascinating. Well, he thought it would be um, he thought it would pair better, be a better from a chemistry standpoint with the components of right. the blend. He's a genius. Which he really is. Actually, the difference is if you smoke them side by side. For me, mm-hmm. is that the Sumatra is a bit heavier. Mm-hmm on the back of the palate and a little bit uh, dirtier. Yeah, like earthier. Yeah, maybe yeah. yeah, maybe a bit sort of like if you drink like a coffee, like a Turkish coffee and you get mm. to like the grounds where it gets right. a little bit muddy-ish texture. It's kind of right. like that. This is more uh, crisp. Right. You know, it's more. Um, oh yeah, I'm definitely tasting that. It's a sharper flavor. Mm-hmm. Sharper construction too, that, that burn line is great. But the Turkish coffee, I remember seeing, I saw it on Instagram, mm-hmm. is when they have like the hot sand and they have like a little percolator yeah. that they put into the sand and then it kind of like just bubbles over. Is that, have you seen that? You know what? For the first time I saw it because I was actually not used to that mm-hmm. in the making of Turkish coffee, but I was in uh, Detroit for uh, my son's mm-hmm. hockey tournament. Re- I mean, I'm talking about recently, yeah. like a couple months ago. And we went, there was a place called Istanbul. That specialized in Turkish desserts. Okay. So we went there, and over there I saw it. Get some guys baklava over there, I imagine. Yeah, I mean, right. they had, you know, they had they had baklavas. I mean, I, I'm kind of spoiled, right? So yeah, I'm like oh, a yeah. snob when it comes exactly. to this kind of stuff. So they had decent baklava, but I mean, the coffee that they were doing was in that sand. Yeah. Which is something that you know I didn't see that much in in Istanbul. It's one of those up. things that it's probably like a very local tradition somewhere in Turkey, but then because of social media, it kind of takes up this like, oh, this is how they do it in Turkey, where it's yeah. like, eh, not like all of us do it like that. In Italy, the same thing happens, where it's like they see one how one person makes, oh, that's how they all do it in Italy, how they make pasta. No, you're it's right. Like, it's, no. it's totally regional, right? Yeah, I mean, it might be something that they do in southern Turkey, for example, and they may not do it in Istanbul yeah. because. Quite frankly, it's just too much work and it's too messy. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, it, it did seem like kind of like a waste of time for for cool experience, but it was for about the size of like an espresso. I'm like, that's a lot of effort. Yeah. He's moving the thing around. He's flipping stuff. Yeah, it's a lot of showmanship. Right. As we discuss, as we get further in this conversation, I think you're going to be surprised about my knowledge of both Armenia and Turkey. Good. Because not only was I a history major, one of my closest friends, his wife, is very Armenian. That's amazing. So, uh, What's the last name? Uh, Marukian. Marukian. Yeah. Do you know like uh, the Armenian kind of, do you know the, the logic behind the last names of Armenia? So I, I know they all, I, the I-A-N is, uh, is consistent, but it's, I think it was always, it's supposed to be a Y? So the I-A-N means son of. Okay. So... Uh, uh, a common Armenian last name is Bediberian. So that means son of the barber. <laughs> you know, there's another yeah. friend of mine, his last name is Keman Jian. Keman is violin. So it means son, son of, of the, the violinist son of the or son of the violin yeah. maker or son, you know, that's kind of the origin of, of the last name. It's funny, since I started knowing her, like being able to pick up on like, a- anytime I see that last name, I'm like, oh, you're definitely Armenian. And it's so strange. I mean, you can kind of pick up on other ethnicities through a last name. Like Italian it can be kind of obvious, yeah. maybe French, uh, Hispanic. But if you have an IIN, I'm like, you're definitely Armenian. Well, I like, mean, so people ask about, uh, you know, part of the identity of the brand was just from organic 
authentic questions that I would get, whether I'm in the cigar business or not. Right. Because people always say, all right, because my given name is Marat. I had to change my name to Tim because no one in- <laughs> That no is a funny in, transition. No one in Nashville could pronounce <laughs> Marat, you know, Marat yeah. Osgener. You know, I'm in like kindergarten. The teacher's going through the roll call. She's like, you know, Brant Ball, yeah. Arthur Henderson, yeah. you know, Jimmy Brubeck, Murat. Uh, who the hell is this? And just, I'm like, oh, like, just call me Tim. We're just no, gonna go with Tim. my best friend's name was Timmy, so I changed my name to Timmy and my, without knowledge of my parents. And so then my father came to pick me up. He's like, I am here for my son, Murat. And they're like, who? And he's like, I know he is here. I am paying for it. That is him there, the boy throwing sand at the other boy. That is my son. Like, the boy oh, sipping mean, coffee in the corner. You mean little Timmy? <laughs> Timmy, awesome. what the heck is this name? And then my Turkish relatives are like, this name, what is it? To me, to me, to me, something caught in your teeth. Murat, that's a name. To me, that is like I need a toothpick. You know, like what? Well, that's that's the fun part about it is that most other places in the world, you know, first name, even surnames have like some special meaning. We like we named you this because of it's uh, some kind of family tradition or historical tradition, or it means like beautiful one of the land. Yeah. And then Tim is just Tim. I know, but I mean, what I was going to tell you about that is that Osgener is not a typical Armenian mm. last name. So, but the thing is, is that my uh, father's mother, mm. her name was uh, Siranush, but we called her Tonton as a nickname, which yeah. is cute, means cute in French. Mm. And she was a very petite woman. I right. mean, she might not have been, I mean, she was five foot, maybe. Right. And so, but her parents were killed by the Turks in the south of Turkey. So she was an orphan. Oh, wow. And she was adopted by an Armenian family in Istanbul. And she never raised my father mm. with what happened to her parents. Because she would always say, because I, I kind of grew up with her and I loved her. And, and, you know, she would always come to visit us in Nashville and cook for us. And so she would say, I would never wanted your father to be raised with any hatred in his heart. Right. Towards another culture, which is you know, he would not have married my mother had that been the case because my mother is full on Turkish and they met in New York City. Right. And so that, I think that always, for me, that background, and so they changed their name, the family she was adopted by, to Osgener because they didn't want to stand out as being Armenian right. in a period of- Tension between that's the two. Right. Between the, yeah. So it, therefore the name was changed. My father told me the original name was Berberian, the that, name that yep, I told you, but it was changed yeah. to Osgener so that it was more neutral. Neutral, right. Yes. Right. I mean, it's not the most common Turkish name. But, it's, but it'll make you fit in in Turkey enough, but it also right. when you're meeting with either Armenian relatives or when you're in America, it's not going to set off alarms like, oh, you're Turkish. It's like it's it's enough right. that like we can kind of skate by with everybody. So my aunt, my father's sister she lives in, in New York. She lives in Bayside, in oh, Queens. Wow. In Queens, yeah. In, you know, and, and she married a Bulgarian-Armenian gentleman, and their last name is Minasian. And in fact, um, uh, you know, my, uh, so my cousin's uh, uh, husband, we got him into Big Smokes and helping yeah. us. So he has a store now. His name is Harry Morjikian in Queens. That's awesome. That's called Harry's Havana Hut. Great guy. Yeah, were you friend? Did you ever get to talk to Avo? 
during back yeah, in the day. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, I yeah. The one thing I, by the way, really quick intro. I think everyone kind of knows who he is already. The great Tim Osgener is joining us today on the Long Ash Podcast of Oz Family Cigars, historic family in the cigar industry. Just wanted to put that out there. If anyone's like, what are these guys talking about? Yeah. Um, but uh, so thank you very much, by the way, for no, uh, for no, joining. Thank us. Absolute I mean, pleasure. Uh, coming over here is very nostalgic for yeah. me because I used to come here and and visit when you know it was Jr. Cigars with. Yeah. Uh, the legendary Lou, Lou Rothman, Rothman. Mm-hmm. and I have a lot of fond memories of Lou in that period. Yeah, I mean, that, that was a wild time in our history, in the cigar industry history, which I definitely want to get into because your your family has played a pivotal role in the cigar industry. But really quick, getting back to Ava, what's funny is that every time I'm with um, my best friend and his, and his wife, uh, her name is Serena, like, if we could be at a stadium with 100,000 people, if there's an Armenian there... They find each other <laughs> like yeah, right. they they have this really cool like almost underground network connection. Yeah, yeah. But uh, that's one of the things I, when you you were touching on it now that I wanted to discuss with you, and I think it plays into uh, what you want to do with your with the Oz family brand is that tension between Turks and Armenians still exists. Now mm-hmm. I have friends who are Turkish and obviously friends who are Armenian. I I feel like the Turkish people are kind of like ah, what are you gonna do? It's old stuff. But Armenians, I mean, it's it's a deep-seated, like, historical tension that they feel here. So you kind of explained how your family had dealt with it, how your grandmother dealt with it. How were you able to kind of deal with it? I'm sure you've come across a lot of Armenians and a lot of Turks, Turkish uh, folks in your time. How does that go? Well, I feel like, honestly, those um, – what happened with that period – that was from generations before right. mine, even. Right. So I feel like people that I meet now that are modern citizens, mm-hmm. you know, understand that these are decisions that were made that we had no bearing on, nothing to do with. I find that I find a lot of, you know, camaraderie, a lot of commonality, a lot of sort of, um, I don't know, there's almost like this, uh, uh, subliminal kind of brotherhood right. that we have with one another because uh, how we kind of do business, how we approach treating other people mm-hmm. is so similar. And then you add things that are more surface, such as the food. I mean, the food is so similar. Yeah. You know that, I mean, and we're all from the same region that I feel like there's that kind of common ties. It almost feels like we we are, we get along and we want to get along, in spite of um, political choices right. or military choices that we had nothing to do yeah, with. Yeah, the the people want to get along, but it's kind of these outside forces, you know, or it's just the histo- yeah, like, yeah, and yeah. historical context is like, no, you guys got to hate each other. All right, but do we do we have to? It's like, yep, you do. But like. We're eating uh, the I, same I, thing. We look similar. We have similar cultures. Like, why yeah. do we have to do but this? But I feel like that what has happened now, and and that's to me, uh, you know, some people ask, like, why you want to get back into the cigar business? You know what I mean? Because it's a, um, it can be a competitive industry. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are a lot of different choices of different cigars for people to try. I mean, what makes, you know, ours special or different as opposed to somebody else's? And, um you know, the reality is the answer to that question is, you know, you, I mean, for us, I, I was born and raised in this industry. I have about like calculated 40 years, either wow. directly or indirectly, either in pipes, humidors or cigars, because they're all related. Mm-hmm. So you try to make it 
as excellent as you can possibly make it Absolutely. for our case and make the flavor to be complex and as you can make it. But I'm sure that everybody else wants to do that that are making cigars too, right? right. They don't, they're not in it to make mediocre cigars, obviously. Mm. So, you know, I mean, for me, what drove it is that I feel like the, you know, the authentic true story of how uh, my family um, uh, got to this country and how they formulated a, uh, you know, they worked their tails off mm -hmm. so that they could have a life right. in the United States and raise a family and make, you know, make a, a good enough living to put food on the table and to raise a family with good ethics and morals and the belief that if you believe in, you know, my father always said, you know, son, the two most important things are your education and your reputation. Mm -hmm. So if you can get a good education in this country, work hard, be concerned with like, you know, your, your word is your bond and deliver, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And build good relationships that you could, you could make a good life here. So I feel like that those are at the heart of what, um, our new cigar brand is about. And uh, it shows that it doesn't matter what your kind of backgrounds are or what you know tensions may have existed. If you have shared values, right. you can actually in this country um, achieve quote unquote the American dream, which is to be able to create a life right. here. Exactly. A good life and not be kind of stuck in a kind of a caste system or anything like that. That's beautifully well said. And I think that your reputation, the reputation of your family as well, you know, is evident in that I'm, I'm sure that there's a lot of cigar smokers who have only come into the industry the past few years. Maybe they you know, obviously didn't understand the history of the Osgoner family, sure, the sure, history sure. of CAO. But as soon as your kind of name was announced that like Tim Osgoner is coming back into the fold, all like the, the wise men, as I call them, you know, the, the high table of the industry were all very excited well, and that's very, very nice. like welcoming and like, oh, yeah. this is going to be great because they all had a respect for what your family had done. And that's what, that's what I want to talk about. So uh, what people might not know, um, a lot of our, our listeners, is that the CAO brand as it's known today, people know CAO, they kind of think of what Ricky Rodriguez did there and the, the, mm. the flathead and all this. But CAO was actually started many years ago by your father in right. Nashville. Right. As I think it was originally a pipe. That's right. Pipe company. Back in 1968. I mean, wow. a long yeah. time ago. Why did he go to Nashville? Because so you said that your parents met in New York, and yeah. you would think that's kind of like immigrants coming to the country. I'm sure he came in the 50s, 40s, 50s, or 60s. Yeah, 60s. You kind of yeah. think he would just stay in, in New York, but he went to Nashville of all places. Now, now it's trendy to go to Nashville, but right. in the 60s, I imagine it wasn't as trendy. Yeah, so um, you know, at the time that my mother and father uh, you know, went on to higher education, in Istanbul for undergraduate first, mm -hmm. they went to Robert College, which is mm -hmm. a you know American-speaking college right. in Istanbul. Only 30% at the time went on to higher education. Wow. The rest of them, the path was you go in the military, you mm -hmm. serve in the military for two years, you get out of the military, and then you, know, you do what you do. Right. But you stay there. So yeah, if you want to seek higher education, you have to work very, very hard. And then your hope is to earn a scholarship to come to United States for your uh, graduate 
studies or degrees. Mm. So that's what my parents did. My father got into Columbia University in New wow. York with a mechanical engineering uh, um, to pursue a mechanical engineering master's degree. My mother uh, was awarded a Fulbright scholarship wow. to go to Bank Street College of Education, which is ironically right across the street from Columbia. So, uh, you know, and she was supposed to go back to Turkey to open up schools like K through third. Mm -hmm. So early childhood development. Um, they met at the International House there, which was in Harlem, and they found through shared interests, and they loved they loved a lot of cultural things. Right. They like they loved you know music, dance, ballet, opera, theater. They liked going to these things, and they would go and you know be standing room or in the the cheap seats, student sections, whatever. They would take mm. advantage of that, and so they enjoyed hanging out with one another, and then and then they kind of fell in love that way. Um, and it was, there was a funny story of like, since my mother was Turkish and my father was Armenian, my mother said to my dad, they were going on a date one night and she's like, I want you to be walking 30, <laughs> 30 feet behind me. So no one sees we are dating. So she's walking down in Harlem and he's, you know, 30 feet behind her or whatever. And then she gets mugged and they steal her purse Oh Jesus! and she's screaming, Jano, Jano. And he like, catches yeah, I, I had to run like, a mile to come get like, you. Where She's like, woman, what the heck do you want me to do? I was 30 feet behind you. Of course I did not hear you. I mean, what am I, Superman? So, What a love story that was. Yeah, so, so, but then uh, eventually they ended up, they went, uh, they stopped in uh, North Carolina uh, on the way down. Okay. I believe it was in Greenville, North Carolina for a time. Mm -hmm. And then eventually my mother went to Peabody uh, School to get her Ph.D., in early childhood development, which is now a part of Vanderbilt University, mm -hmm. but it's a it's a excellent educational uh, uh, graduate school. Right. So that's how we ended up in Nashville. Is that she got into Peabody School in Nashville? My dad got a a job at Dupont as an engineer, and then during that time, he liked these Meerschaum pipes. Is this? I'm uh, sorry. Is this the same Dupont, like the famous like Dupont family that like the the Foxcatcher guy? Wasn't he like part of the Dupont family? This is the famous Dupont that like they there was lawsuits against them because they were working on Teflon and a lot of yeah, people got yeah, cancer. Yeah. And then there's a a movie that Mark Ruffalo is in called yeah. like Dark Waters, I believe. Like yeah. that that kind of yeah. They era. were like big old money. Yes. Amer yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, so yeah. my father got a job with Dupont at the time he was there. He liked these Meerschaum pipes. Mm -hmm. The Meerschaum, you know, Meerschaum is a very fragile mineral made of fossilized crustacea that, you know, carvers carve into them. The primary spot those are made are in Turkey and Eskisher, which is close to Ankara. So, um, but the engineering of it, so it's a fragile pipe mm -hmm. and the shank is fragile, but the stems at the time, you would just shove them in and pull right. them out. And my father was like, well, whoever engineered this is mediocre because, you know, it will crack the shank, you know, yeah. so... He was analyzing microfibers, doing like polyester and stuff like this for DuPont. So he made a fitting that you would twist in the stem and twist it out. Smart and there move. were like a male, female part. And yeah. when one of the parts would, would wear out, you would just simply replace, replace it. it. Right. He went to a tobacconist in North Carolina at the time who had like multiple stores. And my dad's like, you know, I need pipe tobacco and a cleaner and then and the retailer said, well, where'd you get that pipe? And my dad's like, well, I made it. He goes, <laughs> well, can I order some from you? And my dad would always say, son, when you are Armenian, you never refuse an order. Like, how many do <laughs> you want? I give you a deal, 12 plus one. You know, so <laughs> then that ret retailer told other retailers, they started calling our house 
in Nashville. And right. we were living in this, you know, very humble ranch style house in Nashville. And so then my father called my mother's brother in Istanbul. Mm-hmm. He would go to this city, Eskisehir, where all the carvers were. And he would, you know, he would find the pipes that the market, U.S. Mm-hmm. market wanted. He would get them to carve them, bring them to Istanbul, get custom cases for each of these wow. pipes made in Istanbul and ship them to our humble home in, in a residential area in Nashville. And just packing them up in the, in the garage? Yes. <laughs> and we would pack them and ship them out of the garage of our home in Nashville. And people said to my dad, they go, hey, I understand you have this special fitting. I want you to put your initials on the stem so I know it's the same thing I heard about. It. Right. So my dad's like, how am I to do this? So he went to the hardware store, got an electric drill bit, and at night, you know, because he was doing this at night while he's working at DuPont during the day. Mm-hmm. I remember going to sleep hearing the drill bit this is downstairs and he was carving his initials C-A-O, first name Jono, mm-hmm. but Armenian mm-hmm. is spelled C-A-N-O, right? right? But in Nashville, it's Kano. Kano, when are you going to play some tennis? <laughs> I'm about to battle. So, <laughs> so Jono, A-R-E-T, mm-hmm. Armenian middle name, and then Osgener. So that's how we got the name C-A-O, Again, very authentic. That is absolutely right? fascinating. You think of Bezos, <clears throat> Jobs, Gate, they all started in their garage. They're all geniuses. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, they all started like tinkering with whatever it was in their garage. Yeah, no, he was a tinker. He mm. even had some like patents that he did for pipes and stuff like this. He was always, I remember uh, one time growing up, he got a jar, like imagine like a plastic jar, mm. right? That is, or Tupperware with a lid. And uh, he put a straw in it and he would be smoking out of his pipe and he'd have another like meerschaum in there because meerschaum is like absorbent. Yeah. So it absorbs the tar and the nicotine. It starts changing color and he would blow into this straw and the smoke would go down in this container because he wanted to see if he could affect the coloration of the pipe. You know what I mean? Not, that, right. that way. Wow. So he was always doing stuff like this. And I mean, my sister and I, in order to earn our allowance, grew up helping him in the basement of our home in Nashville. That is very much the mind of like an engineer or a genius. Like, oh, well, what if I tinker, if I do this, what will the effect be? Could I alter? It's it's how my, my grandfather was, was in a similar, obviously not to the level of your dad, but in a similar way, like, oh, but if I just like, they they think of physics like differently than than oh, yeah. the normal person would, where they could take something very simple like a pipe and then they see the equation. Like, oh wait, but if I just added this male and female part here and squeeze it in, we would eliminate the cracking of the. It's such an interesting well, way of, to, part, to yeah, see. And it. part of the DNA that I'm realizing now, as I'm talking to you, that I grew up with is that it was always about how can we improve people's enjoyment right. of the product. Another example of this is that there was um, when you smoke a pipe and you put it down and you want to pick it up and smoke it the next day, right? And you have and you scrape out any of the old tobacco, you're mm-hmm. still going to have a little bit of residue at the bottom of right. it. So when you first and you pack it and you light it and you smoke it again, the first few puffs are going to taste of stale right. tobacco. I mean, it would be like smoking this after like you put it down a day. Not very pleasant. So my father was like, well, how, what can I do to solve this problem? And so he came up with this liquid that was actually a blue liquid called sweet and clean, which we added some blue mm. food coloring to. But basically it was alcohol and some other kind of 
you know, uh, liquids mixed together right. and you would dip it in a cloth, you would clean it and the product was called sweet and clean. So that your first puffs would always would be, be sweet fresh. and clean right. and fresh. And so my sister and I, many Saturdays and Sundays, we would have to fill these little <laughs> bottles of sweet and clean and then with this bucket and like a little faucet yeah. thing that you would push in to fill it up. Very slow. My father's like, this is highly inefficient. So we ended up moving to the garage and dunking our hands in this blue liquid. It's two eight-year-olds doing, doing Breaking Bad in the, yeah. in the garage, making making chemistry. <laughs> I have photos of this with like a boom box. That's We would hilarious. listen to a boom box and we would like always have to wipe. We had these rags. We'd wipe off the sides and close them and... Right, I mean, you grew up like yeah. kind of doing this this kind of stuff. So, but man, it was you valuable. were you were involved from like. It's funny, you know. You you talk to I talk to so many manufacturers, and and there's so many unique stories out there. But anytime there's like a family tradition, it usually comes. Oh, my great grandfather worked on the farm in Pinar del Rio, and then they came to Miami. Oh, and they always have their own little avenues they take, but a lot of times they kind of follow that pattern. This is one of the most fascinating origin stories that, oh, I think, yeah. that I think I've heard. So when did he make the transition into cigars? Because what I, really quick, what I find really cool about this is that, you know, he seems you know, obviously your dad was a fascinating intellectual. Um, but CAO, when it came out, it was it was not overtly traditional like as many cigars were that it was actually a very unique like boutique style brand for the time so i'm fat I'm, I'm really curious as to how that transition happened and the creative behind the brand and the blending so if you could dive into that a little bit yeah so we went from like pipes into humidors in the early 90s again because we saw that you know cigars were becoming more yeah, popular the with the advent of like cigar aficionado yeah. celebrity smoking that kind of thing and then, you know, we made solid wood humidors with artists. We trained them to do it in Nashville that were woodworkers. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, when you're showing pipes or humidors, you're going to the same trade show where you have like, you know, cigars, right. humidors, pipes, accessories. So we had friendships. We had relationships. We were there for a while. So it was one of those things that, that uh, my father was like thinking about, should we get into cigars or not? And most everybody that he asked that were his friends in the industry were like, don't do it, except for one person, which was uh, Peter Stokeby. And at the, the time, the, Peter pipe, the yeah. pipe tobacco guy, right. who was Danish, he and my father were really good buddies. And uh, and Peter's like, ah, Jano, they are telling you not to do it because they don't <laughs> want competition. You should just go with your gut. <laughs> and my dad's like, OK, I think we should do it. So that was in like 94. And, you know, he had made friends or he was introduced to Carlos Tarano. Carlos Tarano um, was kind of like a guy that was a bit of a, a, a you know, middleman at the time, mm -hmm. you know, knew a lot, had a lot of relationships. And he said, uh, well, you should get Nestor Placencia to make your cigar. So in 94, our first uh, cigar, and then we debated, should we call it CAO or should we call it something that's more, you know, cigar, cigar sounding, yeah. should we call it like, you know, uh, Casa de Manuel or whatever. Right. And and so in the end, we decided that let's just not everybody, not every retailer will or every consumer certainly will know the reputation of CAO. But a lot of the um, a lot of the more established retailers will know right. the CAO brand for pipes and that it stands for like absolute quality. So we decided to call it CAO, but just change kind of what the look of it right. would be more of an art deco kind of thing. And Nestor made the first 
round of CAOs called uh, CAO Black. That was at the time, though, that cigar popularity was just had an explosive, unpredictable right. growth. So, you know, I mean, I think ne- I visited Nestor at that time, and he was just as busy as you've ever seen anybody. And, uh, you know, you would he, we would receive boxes of cigars, and you know, if the bo- if the it was supposed to look chestnut brown, mm-hmm. one box would look chestnut brown, and the exact same box that supposedly exact same blend would literally be green. Yeah, I mean the the. The what's the, word, the the quality control at that time was from from what I've heard. I mean, I was you know six, but from that from what I've heard and what I've read, it was just people and, and even even uh, our dear friend Miguel just said it before. Anything that kind of looked like tobacco, people were throwing in a cigar at that point just because yeah. there was such a desperation to to That's meet right. the demand. It was crazy. I mean, I've never seen anything like it since. But uh, but I remember at the time, I was um, I went to school at. Uh, at USC in LA. Okay. So, um, Trojans. yeah. So I was, you know, when I graduated from there in 93, I was doing a lot of like, I, you know, I, I, I wanted to be an actor. So I was doing like, you know, any sort of acting, whether it was like, you know, theater or stand up or improv. I didn't intend to get involved in stand up. I got yeah. accidentally thrown into it and, and, and actually was, I was, you know, making people laugh. So I kept yeah, doing yeah. it. Right. So, um, so then like during the, during the night I was doing that, but during the day I was visiting stores and LA at that time had, you know, low tobacco tax and that's where all the celebrities were smoking them. You know, people yeah. like Arnold Schwarzenegger yeah. were having cigar dinners once a week. And I mean, people on the, on the studio lots were smoking them. So yeah. I was in kind of ground zero of cigar culture. You know, mm. arguably there in New York were like where it was happening because Cigar Aficionado helped drive right. it and they were in New and York. You had like the Grand Havana Room, like, right, which was right, like right. the kind of epicenter. Politicians were there, sure, celebrities. Sure, sure. Yeah. So, I mean, like, but I would go into stores and I mean, if I went to your store and you'd be like, Tim, I, I love you and your family. I've done business with, with, you know, your father for years, but your cigars aren't selling. I'm like, why not? And they're like, well, look, one box is brown, one box is green. You know, right. then I would be like, what does it, what would it take to sell in your store? It's like, okay, try this, this, this. If you did a cigar like, you know, other, other cigars, if you did a cigar like this, that was a box press Maduro, but you made it a buck cheaper, I'd buy it from you. So I would end up going to like Central America and working on stuff like this or trying to be the facilitator to make this happen. Right. And then when it did happen, then I would show up at the store and they'd be like, okay, now I got to buy from this kid. Right. You know, (laughs) he did it, I guess, so I got to do it. So I've always believed in, um. I always was taught that the best actors listen and respond, you know, so I always love to to go and visit stores and listen and respond to what people want because you come up with something that people don't want. I mean, what's what's the point? What's the point? And you don't have a business. That's the case. So we got into cigars, you know, we we had when we first got into it. It was, you know, um, what's great about our journey in cigars is that when we first uh, got into it. We were not successful initially. Mm. I mean, I'm talking about for like between 94 to 98, we were not, I mean, it was not setting the world on fire. I think, I think some people, I think you <clears throat> need that. I think f- people need to fail at certain things because mm-hmm. it builds character and it's the only way to truly succeed is to fail at something. And then you try it again. And you try it again until you get it right. No one goes through life just like nailing everything on the first right. go around. That's right. So, and, and so then in 98, um, I, you know, and sometimes 
Like we talked about this before we, we got into this, mm-hmm. you know, when we're, you know, this, this dialogue is that, you know, sometimes things retrospect, you know, especially when you look back on them happen for a reason. Right. And so, you know, there was a, a guy I met to, we had no ads, nothing, who did a beautiful brochure for um, actually one of the first cigar lounges I'd ever visited, which was called Nazareth's. You know, he's mm-hmm. Armenian, Nazareth Guluzian in Beverly Hills. And, and he had a beautiful brochure of his store, gorgeous. It was, I remember it was like a beautiful golden brown shot mm-hmm. of a close-up of a tobacco leaf with his logo N, very simple. And I said, Naz, that's a beautiful brochure. He goes, yeah, the guy that did it like lives right down the street. He's a great guy and I'll introduce you to him. And so this gentleman, his name was David Ravandi. He did our first ad at CAO, which we wanted people to know who we were. Right. And they were like these racy ads with almost like, I mean, they, the women weren't like visibly naked, but you could, they were suggestive right. and, um, and they had a CAO cigar in her hand and then it, and then it just had our logo in gold. And, um, and so David, when my, and no, and nobody at our office liked it except for me and my dad, because <laughs> we figured that it would get people to stop turning right. the page and look and it worked. Yeah. And so very nineties, it's very nineties yeah, move, yeah, yeah. very nineties move. So then this gentleman, Ravandi said, I'm looking for more business. Can you connect me with people? At the time, Bahia cigars were hot. This was like in the uh, this uh, 90s. This is what I've heard. I heard, I asked, I had a, sorry to interrupt you, but I had no, a, no. a round table on my birthday and it was John, it was uh, Alec Rubin, it was Michael Herklotz, it was Nick Melillo. And I asked him a series of fun questions and one of them was, I'm like, if you could have a brand or a cigar from the 90s, from the heyday back now, what would it be? They all said, a lot of them said either the CAO Gold, I believe it was, or the anniversary anniversary Maduro, and the uh, Bahia Gold. Bahia Bahia Gold. The Bahia. Like they're all, the Bahia was the the thing. Well, that was, you know, it was interesting, right? Because it was a guy who opened a factory in a duty-free zone in um, San Jose, Costa Rica, who used to be a cheese blender in in, in, uh, uh, Minnesota, who had retired. Minnesota and Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. And he looked kind of like somebody from ZZ Top. His name was Douglas Perringer. He had a long beard. Very yeah. nice guy. And um, so I hooked up this guy, David Ravandi, with Tony Borhani to do an ad for Bahia because David was Persian. Tony mm-hmm. is Persian. And uh, they ended up hitting it off. David went down to his factory in Costa Rica. And this guy, Douglas Perringer, the guy with the, the long beard, said, I have all these Maduros that are beautiful, that are aging, and, and I would like to expand my business and not just have one person I'm working with. And so David called me and he said, this guy has incredible Maduros. And, <laughs> and I said, okay, have him go and visit uh, our headquarters in Nashville. So actually he came with a, with a suitcase full of Maduro samples. Didn't even come to our office, came and like handed them off in the airport to somebody and went back down. And then they took him back to the office and smoked them. <laughs> and uh, that's what became CAO anniversary Maduro. We got great ratings from Cigar Aficionado out of the gate and then that cigar kind of like put us on the map because we were struggling before then right i yeah. mean but but i i had also kind of knew that a lot of retailers in la liked this style uh liked it f- to be box press and maduro right. of a certain price point and that's kind of what got us in the game sometimes like like you said you have to give the people what they want but sometimes it's they don't even know what they want until it's like, all right, I guess we can try this. I, yeah. There's there's rumblings that this could be, you know, people are enjoying similar styles, but no one's done it like this yet. So let's give it a shot. And sometimes those can be 
the biggest success stories. I mean, before Opus X, there was nothing like it really on the market, and it was very strong, but very regal. It was a very unique approach, and I mean, look how that turned out. So yeah, sometimes just right. kind of fiddling around, like I hope, I think this is what people are, are looking for. Um, but yeah, that, that's what almost everybody said, was the anniversary Maduro and then the... Um, Bahia Gold. Bahia, yeah. Bahia, the Bahia yeah. Gold. Yeah. Um, which, it, didn't he, he got rid of that brand there was like a weird story there or something like where it just yeah, kind of really uh, disappeared. Yeah. Like no one really knows. It just kind of vanished. I mean, yeah, I don't know subsequently what, what happened there with that, um, with that brand to be perfectly honest with you. Uh, I'm sure that, that, you know, others do. Right. But, um, but all I know is that from there, we just kind of, you know, when you have uh, momentum from there, then you kind of right. want to, um, you just want to keep it going. Exactly. You know? And, and so, so then we get to the point where um, it's it's the mid two thousands. At some point, a scrawny little kid from San Francisco with a couple of tattoos shows up, probably looking for a job, probably homeless at the time, looking for a job. Named John, you take. A, I'm guessing you, you just take a chance on this kid, give him an opportunity to work for you, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that was like maybe even um, well, not maybe, definitely it was before. It might have been around 96, 97, maybe, that oh, he, he first approached for a while, us. Though. Yeah, okay. yeah. So he, um, yeah, he sent us a, uh, a letter around uh, Christmas. I remember my father's like, what do you think? I got this letter. Everything's spelled this wrong. What's going on here? <laughs> no, no. Actually, it was a very professional letter. He did yeah. a good job of yeah, it. John, he, I, I, he's I, a good, yeah, John. You know, he's a good writer, right? So he, yeah. he uh, wrote very eloquently about how he uh, loves cigars. That's his passion, and he would it would be his dream to work for a cigar company, and um, and you know and so then my father was like, what do you think? You know, I was visiting from L.A. and I said, well, you know, um, you know, the thing of it is, is that if the usually a lot of times in my because uh, I was you know younger, I said uh, from what my experience is and what I've seen and what I've heard is that uh, uh, the best employees are people that, that really want to work for you right. and that have a passion for what it is that you're doing. So why not give them a shot and hire them? So my father hired him. We needed a shipping manager at the time. And uh, so we made him the shipping manager. But that was clearly not a strength because my father is like, I think you are the worst shipping manager in the history of shipping managers. What is it that you really like to do? So I think that you know, John said that his he liked communicating with uh, consumers via online platforms, which at mm. the time, I think that it might have been just JR that had like a chat room on their website. Yeah, Steve or Saka like was this. like was an innovator of that when he was our he was our president, I believe, in the 90s. And he was a big innovator in like the chat rooms, mm -hmm. um, the, the, you know, the, the kind of foundations of the forums before there was, you know, BOTL and all these things. So. Yeah, so JR does was kind of the the inception of a lot of these online communities. So he got on all those, and I mean, I'm talking about this might have even been before Facebook was established. To be oh, honest yeah. with you, yeah, Facebook was 2004 or five. Yeah, yeah. So this was before then, and so uh, you know, John really enjoyed interacting with customers there, and I mean, you know, he would he would do things like send people like we talked about mm -hmm. swag earlier yeah. he would send them swag he might send them a cigar to try or whatever and it kind of uh that kind of worked for us and uh and he found his sort of 
he found us kind of uh, something that he was he was good at and people responded to and and that's kind of you know he kind of played that role for us relatively uh, uh, like you know relative to marketing in, well, in our growth. it's it's cool because he as, as we're talking about you know CAO plays such an important role in the industry and now now the John is is such a, a titan of this industry and to have you guys kind of have this connected uh, history is just was is really really interesting. Um, so now we're getting to the mid two thousands, and and we don't have to go into too much detail about this. It's just I you know coincidentally we're we're seeing something similar with Alec Bradley just this past week. Was your family looking to sell? Was your dad like wanting to retire, or they just knocked on the door and it was just too good to be like too too good of an offer kind of thing? No, I mean like we were always very. Uh, um I mean, this business is a lot about uh, relationships mm -hmm. and about, like I said earlier, like, you know, you're having a good uh, reputation, right? Right. And so um, we always wanted to build good relationships with our customers. So we had a um, distributor in the UK that we had a great relationship with. He had a company called Loretta, which was a distributor for mainly uh, mass market cigars. And then right. he was getting into more premium cigars. And his company was acquired by Henry Wintemans, which, you know, Henry Wintemans was a, a Dutch company that was producing cigars for, you know, the, you know, the Benelux countries mm -hmm. in Europe. And they were acquired at first by Scandinavian Tobacco Group. Mm. Scandinavian Tobacco Group then, so Henry Wintemans was their premium cigar division at that time. They purchased this Loretta Cigar Company. And then Loretta's chief executive, Gary Hyams, and I and my father uh, formed a very good friendship, great, great relationship. Mm. And I remember I was talking to Gary one day um, and Gary said, well, you know, these these gentlemen from from Holland, they're very keen on getting in the premium cigar business. They feel like that would be a real kind of feather in their cap. And they're, 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 they've got a keen eye. They're, they're starting to look and right. say, well, what kind of company are they looking at? Like, well, quite frankly, a company like yours. And I was like, wow. We were not looking to. Right. We were having a lot of fun in the business. We were growing the business, and you survived um, the the kind of the purge of the boom in like the late nineties and mm -hmm. mid two thousands. It's it's not where it is today, but it's like picking up again. It's like you can if you yeah. can maintain your business, it's kind of going well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, and then so that kind of was interesting. We weren't expecting it. We um, we spoke to them. They um, made an offer to buy our business. We were like, well, this has never happened before. Um, you know, my father being a guy, you know, my dad, when he came to this country, I mean, he was working during the summers when he was at Columbia as like, you know, a busboy during the summers in the, right. or a waiter in the Berkshires. You know what I mean? Like, he, right. So, I mean, for him, it's like, okay, wow, this is something new. And so... Yeah, but we the, the dreams in, paying off. Yeah, but we brought in people yeah. to help kind of like analyze the deal and right. or the offer and what that meant, relatively speaking, from a financial standpoint after tax or whatever. And then we said, well, you know, we feel like that we're having fun, we're enjoying it, we're building the business, and we feel like that you know it's a it's a nice kind of gesture. But um, and we were very polite and we right. said we said thanks but no thanks basically. Yeah. But in a very nice way. And we're like, we're honored yeah. that you would think so highly of what, because the thing is, when somebody makes an offer to buy your business, it's actually a really nice compliment. Exactly. 
you know, so they, they value it. Like the, the, they're seeing there's value in there and that, that yeah. they want part of that value. Yeah, so we're, yeah. so we're truly honored that, that you would think enough of us to go to the trouble to make an offer, but right. you know, we politely declined it. And then they came a year, a year later with an offer that was, you know, uh, um, a better offer than, then we had to do the whole process again and say, well, I mean, this is getting towards, you know, 2007 where there was some headwinds, right? You mm -hmm. can tell legislation was ramping up. Mm -hmm. We could see that there was a the threat of uh, an excise tax increase, which ended up being the S chip kind mm -hmm. of um, uh, tax now that is that is assessed on on every stick. And uh, we were like, well, all of our family's kind of you know assets are in a volatile uh, category, being tobacco. And um, might be the time think, to, yeah, to yeah, yeah. And I mean, you know, my father had a lawyer, ironically, a friend of his who just passed away last week, and um, I'm sorry, very successful lawyer who was very shrewd. And he always told my dad about uh, there was a, a, a restaurant that, er, that a lot of people would go to midday and just sit at the bar and order something quick, and then you know, and and the lawyer said, well, that guy was offered uh, um, a fair offer for his business, uh, not in not in cigar business at huh. all. Um, and he turned it down because, you know, he was riding high, you know, and then all of a sudden some outside of his uh, imagination, some other kind of legislation, legislations came in to devalue the business and he didn't sell it. And now the guy doesn't have any, now the guy has, is, you know, is struggling. Right. And, uh, and my father really kind of that he repeated that story over and over and over. So I think that that kind of stuck with him and he was like, well, maybe the time is right to do something now. I mean, now my sister and I also had, you know, um, equity in the company. Right. Uh, but you know, uh, that was kind of what happened there. So would you say it was a, was it a bittersweet thing or was it like, because you stayed on for a while I did. with I, CEO yeah. at General. So it was, I'm sure at the time you're like, oh no, this is good. We're, get, we're getting the money for the company. And then we're also going to be involved to make sure that the legacy and the quality is maintained. So I imagine at the time it was probably like, no, this is like, this kind of all works out for, right, for right. everybody. Yeah. What made, did you just leave like, hey, I kind of run my course here? Or was there, you just, you didn't like the direction it was going? And again, you don't have to reveal any details you don't want to. But. Well, no, I mean, I, you know, look, listen, at first it's very exciting and fun because you have access now to um, all of these right. uh, global markets that you could you could get in. Right. And really the kind of the behemoth of big corporate, you have their resources to kind yeah, of back and you, you and do you what know, you, you want. Could, you could kind of, um, you, could, you could build a brand for it to be, you know, a truly global brand. Mm -hmm. Um, but then, you know, they had a merger with um, uh, Swedish Match. Yeah. And they were going to move uh, our headquarters to Richmond, Virginia. And, uh, and they, I mean, they were very fair. They made a very kind of, you know, nice gesture for me to remain with the company. Um, it was just, I felt it was time for me, right. you know, and, and I felt that there were other stuff that we wanted to do. We ended up converting our warehouse into a contemporary arts center that's a nonprofit called Oz Arts Nashville awesome. that you know, knock on wood is doing very well right now. That's and, awesome. um, you know, so, so we wanted to go in that direction. Mm. So it kind of, we sort of looked at it as like, okay, that was, that was a nice chapter of our lives and now we're ready for the next chapter or that was a mountain that we climbed and now we're ready for to for climb the, the next right. mountain. So you took about, so that was 2000, let's see, it was, it was 2010 is 2009 is kind of when that's you, about right. Yeah. yeah. 2010. Yeah. So you take about 12 years off. Mm -hmm. And then you're, you're, 
you're still somewhat involved in the industry, obviously rep by, by at minimum reputation, but I'm sure you're still somewhat involved. What, what were you doing during that time? Were you kind of focused on that? The, the arts, the arts, the yeah, art yeah, center yeah. and that. All right. So the art center was a big undertaking because yeah. we had to, uh, when you start a new business, whether it's a nonprofit or a for-profit, it's a new business. Right. And, uh, especially the first five years, it's like the first five year of your child's life. Right. You know, those are formative years. You got to be on top of it. Everything very nurturing constantly. You want to to be there as much as you can because that's, those are, and I learned this from my mother, those are very formative years, very similar in a business. When you start a business, again, whether it's, you know, for-profit or non-profit, you got to be a hundred percent all in and passionate about it and something that I'm a hundred percent committed. Right. And so I was like that with our nonprofit Oz Arts because we were bringing in contemporary avant-garde performing arts mainly to Nashville, to a region where stuff like this, like in New York, for example, there's this place called BAM, Brooklyn Academy of Music, that has similar programming to us. Where it might be, you know, you might find it in a New York, Miami, LA, San Francisco, but you weren't finding it in Nashville, in Nashville right. or in the Southeast. So we were bringing these kind of like performances to the Southeast, international artists and local artists. So, but also one of the things that I realized is that when you're putting together, you're bringing this in, you need a good team around you. Right. So to formulate the team and to bring together a team that is the right mix of people is also not easy, particularly in a nonprofit. You have to find people that are truly passionate about the arts. And especially like you said, tough to do in Nashville is to find the people, like find these kind of these people. I'm like, who's really going to dig deep with me on this? Because this is, you know, you can go to Brooklyn, throw a stone and you'll find a hundred great people who would, you would love to have involved in this, who have knowledge of this kind of, um, this kind of part of the arts. But in Nashville, I'm sure you really had to dig deep to find the people, but it seems like you found them. Yeah. I mean, it it worked out. It took a long time, but I mean, to get the right, group of people. But the, the, the thing is at the end of the day, you have to find people that are passionate about the style of art that you're doing. And, and it it gets very, very specific, not dissimilar to people that are passionate about cigars. Mm. That's all they want to do. I mean, like our, our team right now at crowned heads and, you know, Osgoner family cigars are people that are passionate about the industry. Right. That gives them kind of longevity. You know, they're, they're not, you know what I mean? They love cigars. When you when you get into certain, I mean, I think, I think in in all aspects of life, if you have a passion, it's going to make it easier. But there's certain businesses like you can make a lot of money as a banker. You don't need to love it. You just need to be good at it. So some of the financial things. But I think cigars is is one of those industries where if you have just a deep love and respect for the institution as a whole. You need that to be successful. Some people can find short-term success and you know make a couple bucks uh, and kind of fool their way through it. I think we have all seen an example of that. But to have longevity in this, like you said, you need to have that dedication. It needs to be about the love of the game, and then the money will come later. So yeah, yeah. you have this era where you're where you're you're working on your foundation. So I'm gonna guess sometime around 2019, 2020. I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you what I imagine how this story goes. You tell me if I'm right or wrong. Sure. You're looking at the industry as a whole. You're seeing all right. It's, it's going well. There's a lot of new brands out there. A lot of opportunity out there. You see, John is just struggling. You see, he's 
Mike and Miguel are trying to make the best out of that business, and John's just futzing around, and you're like, I have to come in here and save this guy. I'm guessing that that's how this went, and then you showed up at the door, and you're like, John, I'm here to help you, and he welcomed you in with open arms. Did it go somewhere along like, kind of like those lines? <laughs> Now you're trying to get me into trouble. <laughs> <laughs> I hope he doesn't get mad. I, I, he knows. He knows I'm fooling with him. Um, but what what was the spark that made? Obviously, there was always going to be an opportunity somewhere, especially with John because of the relationship. But you could have done X amount of things in the cigar industry, so there was always an opportunity there. What was the spark that you're like, no, I want to get back into this, and not just as a consultant or doing this, get back into it kind of as a as a full time occupation again? Well, my father. Uh, aside from being kind of a mentor to me, he was also my best friend. You know, mm -hmm. he was my best man in, in my wedding, oh, that's which awesome. is another funny story. But anyway, but when he passed away in, in 2018, um, you know, like literally we'd had a celebration of life <clears throat> at our art center, which was our converted distribution warehouse mm -hmm. from CAO. And then the following day, our artistic director wanted to meet with my wife and I, because my wife was involved too. And then she told us that she was moving to Miami with another job. So at that time, it really had to hunker down and, right. you know, I, I worked my tail off not only to fundraise for the art center, but also to find a new uh, artistic director, which fortunately we found an outstanding artistic director that we recruited from L.A., who previously the Disney family had hired to start a similar organization to ours oh, wow. in downtown Los Angeles at the, um, at the Frank Geary designed beautiful building, mm -hmm. iconic in downtown LA where they have the Walt Disney Philharmonic on one side and the other side, they have a contemporary performing arts theater called Red Cat Theater, which is an acronym mm -hmm. for Roy and Edna Disney Cal Arts Theater. Oh, wow. Cal Arts was a, a higher learning institution college started by Walt Disney mm. for people that wanted to go into arts, into the arts, like whether it was like, you know, in animation or something else, but they wanted to find a career in it. So he was the founding artistic director and executive wow. director there. So this, is a, this is a big tier guy. Big tier guy. He was being recruited by Mikhail Baryshnikov wow. to run the Baryshnikov in New York. He was being recruited by the Wexner in Columbus, Ohio. But he, he, we kind of wooed him into Nashville because he saw that Nashville was kind of like a rising Phoenix city. Right. Um, and, and he thought that it would be great for him to be able to make his mark and make an impression and kind of right. change the landscape of Nashville in the Southeast, you know, with his programming there, which, so he's, he's the gentleman who's, who's running Oz Arts now. But, um, but during that period also, uh, someone recommended for me to go see this, this guy who was a career coach. Now, I, I didn't really need to see a career coach, yeah. but he was seeing another gentleman in Nashville who I really respected, a guy named John Ingram, who um, his his family is a very successful family. Um, and and he kind of connect. John was the youngest of like four kids. And he got John to kind of connect with his passion, uh, which and find out what is it that is his sweet spot? What is it that he can have an impact in and do and then work within that sweet spot for John? It was like, I really actually love that even though I'm, I'm not a soccer player and I didn't, you know, I didn't play higher level soccer, uh, I think soccer can bring people together from different kind of socioeconomic mm -hmm. backgrounds and different demographics, and it can help unify the city. So John ended up being the kind of owner 
of Nashville's new MLS club, which oh, is, wow. uh, yeah, uh, NSC, Nashville Soccer Club. And so he was, there were, there was a lot written about him. And I was like, okay, if this is John Ingram's coach, then I'm going to go see him. And this gentleman, he made me do a, uh, uh, kind of like a timeline, like the stock market of yeah. your life from age one, every year of your life. This was up, this was down. Right. You know, like what high points, low points. Yeah. And yeah. I found that my high points, you know, some of them were certainly when I was in CAO and I was creating stuff like Brasilia or whatever that I would create things. People would react to them. They would like them. They would, they would buy them. They would, you know what I mean? All that right. kind of stuff. And then his whole thing was like, well, if you love kind of the, um, the, the, you know, the creativity part of that, and you also love the communicative, you know, communicative part of that, then that's your sweet spot. And you should try to kind of get back to where your sweet spot is. So after that, then, then ironically, then I had, um, you know, Mike Condor, uh, reach out to me and say that who uh, I've been told is the real brains behind the entire operation. That's what well, Mike is. Mike is someone that we had hired at, at, um, at CAO to, yeah. well, that's not true. It's a, it's a, we have a, I believe in teamwork. It's yeah, not one guy. Absolutely. I mean, any, any successful yeah. entity is a, is a team effort thing, but Mike and I, we had hired Mike at CAO to start our sales force. And then from there, then he kind of grew into other roles with us. And so he came to me and he said, I think, if you wanted to get back in, we would love to have you come back in. I said, well, ironically, funny enough, I was thinking about that anyway. So those kind of, it those just, kind the of stars aligned, the stars aligned. Right. And, um, and then I started working on this concept and it took about two years for the concept of right. what is, you know, what, it, what is, if you have a new brand, what's the new brand? What's, what's the, the story behind it and everything? Fortunately, I made friends with a guy who was a very, um, creative and innovative, um, designer, uh, branding guy. And, uh, he was someone I met because of Oz arts. Mm. I was looking through some magazines and I saw through this one Esquire magazine, they had an international competition to rebrand their logo. They didn't just for fun. And, uh, and there were winners from all over the world. And this gentleman won it in Portland and he took each one of their, their letters for Esquire and he carved them out of solid walnut. Oh, wow. Each letter was different with different like kind of intricacies it's within each Portland one of them. a Portland thing to do is a lot and of wood he, carving. And he put it in a crate mm -hmm. with bird's nest around it and shipped it to their headquarters in New York and they had to open the crate and then each one of their letters was different. Wow. And, and I thought it was, blew me away. So I sent him a letter. I didn't know who he was. I sent him an, an email and I said, you don't know me. This is what we've done. I would love for you to help us with our identity of our new art center. And so he helped us create our identity at Oz Arts. And then I went to him and I said, um, and then I, I couldn't get in touch with him because he was hired by Google as their chief designer. He worked at Google for a while. He left Google because he wanted to be independent again. Mm -hmm. And he also, before Google, he was doing stuff for Nike out of Portland. Oh, wow. So yeah. he helped with me for two years. And we started with the, the heart. Right. Like, who are you? And your family, because I said, I want it to be around my family because, you know, we have like, a think a rich history. Mm -hmm. Who are you? What's important to you? What are you about? And we had like these four concentric circles, which what's important to us is like, you know, the quality, the ingredients, the flavor. And the last one might surprise you. Good humor. No, but by absolutely. good humor, I'm not just meaning we can guffaw and laugh. Right. I mean, some people you can sit with talk with, share experience with, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. 
So where all of those circles concentric uh, or they, they come together, that's where you kind of want to live. And so that was kind of the, the beginnings of how you create a brand. And we even looked through some old archival Cuban vistas. Right. Through a printer in Holland that I had a close relationship with, Vrydog. And they have a massive kind of re, uh, library of old expired mm-hmm. Cuban artwork. And so we found a shape we wanted to use to put the stories within the framework for what eventually became the vista for this uh, for this box and then for the band. So it was it was a it was a long but rich and rewarding kind of process. It's it's really cool that you know the the amount of people that you've kind of come in contact with with in these relationships that you've built is this wasn't just you know there's you know ten cigar you know kind of market you know agencies out there that you know help people build brands or or make logos but you went to like the guy who used to work for Nike and Google um, and it's just this incredible story. And I, you know, obviously the, the logo came out great. Um, tell us a little bit if you can, cause from what I understand is, is there's obviously the, the familial meaning of just Oz, you know, Oz family, uh, and their kind of cigar history, but there's also this deeper cultural meaning behind the cigar, particularly, you know, the Bosphorus, which is the strait between Europe and Asia, mm-hmm. technically. How does that play in a little bit as well, the, the kind of cultural aspect? Yeah, well, I mean, look, the, the uh, um, you know, the, the story of my family and how they kind of got together and, and were able to marry, as I look back on it, was something that I thought was, um, you know, a nice example, particularly um, at this current climate that we have, where there's... Um, you know, all of this kind of, um, you know, uh, differences of opinion and division that might be entering, that not might be, that has entered mm-hmm. our politics, right. right? And so I felt like that, you know, the, the authentic and true message of my folks overcoming those uh, cultural uh, impediments or obstacles or differences to uh, marry and to be together for 55 years and to create a life and to create a family. We're a small family, you know what I mean? I don't have tons of relatives, but I thought that that was a nice example about how, and you know, my, my, the other thing I really missed about cigars was that whenever I would go and do cigar events, which I did a lot of, mm-hmm. I enjoyed doing them, is that everybody was relaxed, was exhaling, you're slowing down your breathing, um, but at the same time, your cigars are not the kind of thing that you smoke that uh, put you to sleep. Right. They actually make you relaxed, but also they get make you more attentive. And I think that you're still getting a little a little bit of nicotine through the sides of your palate, yeah. even though you're not inhaling them. That gives you that alertness. So you're in this position that you're in a you're in a relaxed mood because you're slowing down your breathing automatically on the inhale and exhale of the cigars. You're more attentive, so you're in a perfect position to kind of listen. And really get to know people. Right. And you might have nothing in common with the person, but you have this in common. So I feel like cigars are really kind of a great uh, bridge to understanding one another. And I think that that is is useful. And by the way, ironically, I also think that arts are a great Mm -hmm. way of understanding other people. Because if I go see something that's artistic, whether it's a painting or a sculpture or whether it's a piece of performance art, Right. I'm learning something from the artist's point of view 
that maybe I haven't considered before. Right. And it might move me in some odd way. I may not agree with what the artist is saying or portraying. However, it's gotten me to think, put myself in that person's shoes and to, to think about that. Right. And I think that cigars are a bridge that we can kind of uh, understand and communicate with one another. And I mean, look, even I remember in, in Nashville when we came out with our cigars and you could smoke in all these steakhouses and stuff, there were many times that I ended up with politicians yeah. that were on the hill in Nashville and then walked down to the steakhouse to eat a steak and they could smoke a cigar in the bar. And then the owner of the steakhouse would, or the manager would say, hey, can you come over and just smoke cigars with these guys or let's do a cigar event? Because what ended up happening is it doesn't matter what side of the aisle you sat on. I mean, you were just like, you know, you're human. Right. And, and there's more that actually binds, that brings us together than the opposite, right. you know? So we're all on this, on that journey together. We all came from different starting places and maybe, you know, we're maybe taking different routes, but we're all on the journey together. Yeah. So we have that. We're all, we're all there together in some facet. Yeah. And yeah. it's funny that you mentioned the, you know, the literally building <clears throat> the bridge, you know, culturally, um, in your case, ethnically between you know, Turk, uh, Turkish and Armenian, mm -hmm. and then naming it the Bosphorus, which is kind of, the right. separator between that and you're looking to bridge it, as did Xerxes, by the way, I believe, uh, if I recall. I think he whipped the river, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but I think it, it all kind of ties into this this really interesting theme on on humanity, mm -hmm. which... You're right, 100%. Yeah. It's all about, like, that's what brings us together, right, is, is our humanity. Which is why, I wanted to say this earlier, but we're kind of gotten to it now, is that... With all of this, um, these earthquakes that have happened recently in Turkey, yeah, right. You have people that are now like emerging out of the. I mean, like you know, Turkey and Greece, for example, haven't had also the closest of relationships, even though mm. they they also have quite a lot uh, in of, common, right? Right, and even Greece has come over and said and, and is helping right. with the situation in Turkey because of the humanity, right. Um, People they want to uh, uh, they they want to have a better life for themselves, right. you know. And at the end, what motivates you to want to kind of help somebody is our shared humanity. Exactly. No, I couldn't agree more. And I think, you know, I don't want to get too deep on the politics, but we even we mentioned before, you know, government they they like to create attention because it requires. Sometimes I think it requires a need for them. Like, oh, well, there's these crazy people across the river. But if you stick with us, we'll take care of them. But it's like, but but are they like it, if I was at a restaurant with them or are, are, are we just going to come to blows or are we going to eat some Lama June and just hang out? Like, what do yeah. you, you know? So it, it is unfortunately that is just the way of the world. But something like this and, you know, even if it's in an industry the size of the cigar industry, it's it's important. It's important to get that messaging across. Yeah, um, I think I think you're right, and I mean, you know, the the Bosphorus, as you kind of pointed out too, was an important historical strait, and yeah. Constantinople, which is Istanbul now, was an important city because you had to cross. You know, Bosphorus is where Europe meets Asia. Yeah, I mean, it's like the gateway into Asia, or it's the gateway into Europe, depending yeah. on if you're coming Everyone, from Asia. Every invading army had to deal with that at some point. Right, right. So it's an irony that that's kind of you know, and you have a lot of bridges. Right. That are in, in Istanbul kind of bridging, you know, those two sides together. 
So I feel like cigars are the bridge. Yeah. Are a bridge, you know, to, to kind of like to friendships, to relationships, to understanding. Yeah. To, like um, it's a, to that joint humanity of yeah, us all. Yeah. So I think it's for me, uh, you know, I like doing things like this because I have a chance to like, you know, sit back and kind of, you know, explain this, you know, more, uh, more in depth. But, but I feel like that, you know, cigars are a, uh, um, cigars are an important way that we can kind of get to, you know, resolve problem. I always feel like if you have a problem and you get in the room and you take the temperature down with a cigar or maybe a, a, a coffee or water or beverage, then you can find common ground. Exactly. Exactly. I couldn't agree more. That's we we harp on that a lot with a lot of our our guests do so, I mean, some of my favorite manufacturers, yeah, they they love cigars in terms of the tobacco and the creative process. But a common thread that you'll see with a lot of manufacturers is like it, it what attracts us to the industry and to doing this is that it brings people together. You walk into a cigar event and there's every lifestyle, ethnic background, occupation, um, financial status. They're all able to, and whether they're smoking a $100 Padron or a right. $1 bundle, they all have that shared experience. And like you said, that can breed conversation and understanding to, to further, you know, create the, that, that communication and create that that shared humanity and it forces you to slow down yeah right in this day and age we're running around that's one thing i noticed too is that like i mean people are running around and you're on your cell phones all the time and i mean it's right i you're mean but, cigar, but cigars yeah. if you're committing to a cigar you're committing you know you're committing to i'm going to relax for x amount of time right so you have to slow down exactly exactly um, we talked a little bit about the blend, and we obviously know that there was a change, you know, going over and now working with Ernesto, which I also find really fascinating because your family and Ernesto kind of a shared path there, big kind of boutique important brands during the cigar boom, both sold to the same company, both stayed on a little bit. And then both left to kind of do your own thing. So that must be really fun getting to work with Ernesto. Well, I mean, I've always had a really kind of uh, great admiration and relationship with Ernesto and his family. And, uh, you know, when it came to uh, this is a true story is that like when uh, um, after we had sold CAO, it was like uh, I remember it was me and John and Mike sat down and uh, we wrote down on these big post-it pads what were our most important learnings when it comes to, and this is at the time that we knew that, uh, uh, you know, we wanted to start crowned heads and, you know, John and Mike would start it and I would, you know, I would join when I could. And, the, the and, man uh, behind the curtain uh, kind I of mean, thing. Well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> but we sort of, it was for fun. And, and really the, the thing that kind of struck first and foremost of like, and we wrote, you know, which factories were hot or like, you know, but what ended up being the, the number one most important quality was, um, ironically was kind of your, uh, trust, trust. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, with Ernesto and his family, they had, uh, such a passion that was, uh, sincere passion, uh, for making cigars, making quality cigars, being true to their word. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of times if you're going to be, uh, getting cigars made from different factories that you don't own, you can't uh, sign a con. I can't have a contract drafted and give it to a factory in Nicaragua 
and then us both sign it and it be truly legally binding. Right. Because they're not a U.S. entity. They're in Nicaragua. Right. So they or, can screw you if they wanted to and like how you don't have jurisdiction to go down there. It's just. Yes. Right. So who you are dealing with, it's truly kind of a, a handshake honor, you know, man to man or woman to woman or, you know, man to woman deal. So, um, and that was very important to us is that Ernesto was a man of his word, just like, you know, mm -hmm. we are. Yeah. So, um, and also he's concerned with meticulous detail and attention to detail and quality, which we love that too. Absolutely. You know what I mean? I, uh, really have no, would have no interest in getting back into the cigar business, um, unless I could apply, uh, aggregate years of, you know, learning that I had and, and also having a cigar that, um, can express the complexity of the relationship that's shown on the Vista, which is in essence kind of like my family background story. Right. I wanted to have someone that could help, uh, express that story through the actual product. I think that we've actually done that with Ernesto because Ernesto is so, um, like we talked earlier about what's your sweet spot. Right. He knows what his sweet spot is. He's concerned with making the cigar as good as it possibly can be. And what is it that is your, the, the vision, the idea behind the cigar. It's like working with an, uh, almost like working with a graphic artist is like, you kind of explain to them, this is the essence I want. This is this, this is that, you know, sometimes you, you, it's hard for you to communicate that, but you kind of give them your, you know, the essence of like, you know, or the themes you want to see. And then they come back with the, you know, with the logo or with, in this case, the cigar. And it's like, wow, you nailed it. Mm -hmm. And something is, you know, he didn't do the band, you know, like he didn't create the logo and everything. He just created the blend. And then when you smoked it, you were like, yes, this this fits every single one of those check marks, and it's amazing when you have someone who can understand what you're saying and then help you express that. Um, yeah, I it's, think it's it's fascinating. I think that's right. When we first look, the first deck that we had that it, that explained to get to this, the story behind it, you know, it was about a 250 page deck. So we narrowed it down when I showed right. it to Ernesto and and uh, his son Ernie at first. Now, we narrowed it down from a 250-page deck to maybe a 30-page deck. But then he understood it. I could tell that he was like, this is, I understand it. I understand the background. And uh, and he was moved by it. Right. That's important. And I think it's, imp that's why I feel like now, knowing what I know, you know, you. I think you just have to start with, um, you know, why are you doing this? Having I mean, that same you have connection, to start with the, why. the connection that you're trying to exude with the cigars, that person that you're working with needs to understand that as well. They need to have the the same passion. Yeah. Everything we've talked about, they need to understand it. So once he was like, oh, "I understand that," and like you said, it moved him. That was probably like the starting point. That was the like, "All right, this is going to be great." Because once you understand the heart of it, not like we want it to be spicy or we want mm -hmm. a Maduro or we want this size. When you understand the heart of it, we know that we can make something special here. Mm -hmm. And the Cigar Aficionado ratings that we have right here, 93, 93, 92, and 90, that's an impressive first Well, it belies that. And I will also tell you that as a result of that, your, what you said earlier was 100% correct. You know, I mean, like, 
who you have that is on your team uh, is very, very important. And um, are they aligned? Do they understand it? All of these things that you mentioned, he went through the same thing that we right. went through. You know, I mean, all of that and you aggregate it ends to like we're on a similar wavelength. Here. Right. And what I do is different than what he does well, but we need one another. Exactly. Right? They complement one another. And I could honestly tell you that I could put this cigar right now up. Uh, I could com- you could compare it to any cigar in the world. It is world class. Absolutely. And that's the goal. Otherwise, uh, don't do it. You know, that's that's yeah. how I look at Absolutely. it. Absolutely. If, if you're not striving to do to have it be the best. Um, and I've talked to a lot of manufacturers about this who are like, I think my cigars are the best in the world. And he's like, if you don't think that, then you don't belong here. If you don't, if you're not striving to make the best product on the market each and every time, what are you doing here? It's a, it's a, it's a, almost like a waste. Well, when I smoked these, I said, these are outstanding and you know, um, and they, they just need to be, they need to be rated and whatever they are, they are, but I think they're excellent. No, absolutely. So, I, you know, I was really kind of, I mean, this vertical rating is the highest vertical rating my family has ever received. CAO never received a vertical rating like this. I think it's probably the best cigar that I've ever been involved in. And, and you know, we, we had a lot of, we had a lot of cigars right. though at CAO through the time that we were involved in that I thought were, were unique and outstanding, you know, but, uh, um, but it's that's saying something, you know. You yeah. You hopefully after forty years you learn something. You learn, yeah. yeah, right? yeah. You'd hope you learn at least one thing. Yeah. But I mean, apparently, I mean, obvi- it's obvious that you did because to have this run on nineties uh, on all sizes from cigar aficionado and those ninety threes, they don't hand those out like candy. No, those well, are we, earned. We didn't expect it. I mean, we were um, actually going down to Dominican Republic with our um, with our team mm-hmm. uh, so that they could kind of see how. Um, uh, Ernesto's factory, Tabacalera Alianza, is making their cigars in the meticulous attention to detail. And uh, so we were on our way down there, and uh, we were getting these texts saying the ratings are about to come out, the vertical rating for this. And then I was with Ernie Jr., and he was like, oh, God, I'm nervous. I'm not, this is like, <laughs> it, it is. We, it's nerve-wracking. We didn't expect it to, to get the vertical that it did. We, we, we you know— we you knew it would, would do well, but like, you, you know, you you knew that it would do well, and you were like, "We we believe in the project." But some of these ratings, you know, some of these who companies, knows, yeah. yeah, exactly. Who knows? Who knows? It's like, but when we saw it, we were like, it exceeded kind of what right. our kind of expectations are right out of the bat. But you know, well, I mean, you, you're listen. After all that that time off, you haven't you guys you haven't lost a step in this industry. You, oh, you came right you. back in with an ultimate success. Um, a few things just before we finish up here. This, first of all, it's been an absolute pleasure talking yeah, to you. Yeah, no, it's and been great. You're, you're a great interviewer. Ah, uh, no, I'm just a good bullshitter. Yeah, um, no, no. you're all, the, uh, the industry as a whole, those who knew you and your family from before, we're all very, very excited to uh, to have oh, you thank back. Thank you. That's very nice. What is next? Or is there something on the horizon, something you're working on, something you can talk about? Me and Chris are getting to go to our first trade, well, his first trade show uh, this summer. We've been absent for the past couple of years. Anything we can expect there? Any uh, any inklings or something? We have a um, we have another extension that we're going mm. to kind of release from here. That is, um, this kind of harkens and honors sort of uh, you know the Bosphorus mm. and like Istanbul, and so we're about to release something that kind of 
uh, more highlights around the uh, Armenian side of my family. So, so that's going to be our next kind of um, release. Hopefully, we'll have it out and announce it um, by the end of next month. Awesome! So, I have to tell Serena about it. So I know yeah, she'll, she'll yeah, be interested. So, but again, uh, you know, we wanted to do it honestly um, in February, but we didn't feel it was ready. Right. And uh, we don't want to uh, rush anything. You'd rather do it that it's. Um, listen, not everything is always going to be one hundred percent on. Right. But we want it to be right. We don't exactly. want to rush anything uh, and then regret it. Exactly. Can so. I ask you one thing about that? And you don't have sure. to tell me, but because I've heard stories and you've mentioned how meticulous he is, and I've heard stories that this is what he does, the saying it's not ready. Was that Ernesto? Because I've heard Ernesto being like, it's, it's not ready yet. And he'll be like, oh, well, they're announcing this in, in June for this cigar. And he's like, no, it's not ready. The and truth, then it'll the come out a few is, months later and it'll be, you know, a 95 no, the, rated. the truth is quite the opposite. Oh, okay. The truth is the cigars are ready. Okay. It was everything else. The, the packaging is not ready. Ah, uh, the, the, the logistics nightmare people are running into since COVID has just been... But listen, if the packaging know. is re not ready, uh, I don't want to present to you or show right. you a cigar that uh, doesn't look... Like it's going to look. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, we always felt like this at CAO, is that my father always said, well, if you are at a restaurant and you say, I have the best steak, and you present the steak, and the steak has the sauce is running into the mashed potatoes, and, you know, then it is getting on your asparagus, it does not look like the best steak. Nah. Right? So you could have the right product, you could the have the best steak, but, the wrong but if the presentation looks yeah. bad, then does it look like it? Right. No. You yeah. know, I mean, it would be like you presenting a cigar that is on a paper that you printed from your printer over here. Yeah. Was that what you would want? No. So. No. And, it, it. and it's such a tight market now with so much great competition. It's like, we know the cigar is going to get across to our fans and to the industry, but we got to, there has to be that little bit of pop first to catch their eye. And then we know the cigar will take care of the rest. Yeah. But packaging is important. It is. Packaging and, is very important. And a lot of people like to downplay packaging. Yeah. And uh, I think unfairly so. I think that the packaging and the presentation of it should match the quality of what the cigar right. is. Should honor it. Exactly. Really, it's honoring it. Right. There's a middle, there's, there's, a, there's a level there where it's like, we need to make sure this packaging speaks to the cigar. Now, there's people who will kind of cover up a not great cigar by having the, the fanciest embalmed band or, oh, it comes in a tank or whatever, whatever gimmick they're kind of pulling out. But at the end of the day, the packet now it, that can mean, you know, if you release a budget line cigar and it's $4 or a $50 cigar, the packaging has to fit. And I don't mean the blend, but like the story of the cigar, the, the packaging has to fit. What do you want to tell with this product? I think that's incredibly important. And, and all the great cigars have, and I'm not going to say fancy packaging, but they have the, the perfect create, uh, creativity behind it for that cigar and for that story. At the end of the day, I mean, I think that you want to be true to yourself. Exactly. And you want to be authentic in what you're presenting. Um, I mean, I, I look at it this way. If I have to go and tell the story over and over and over, I want it to be, well, two things. I want it to be as true and as authentic as possible in a story that I love telling over and over, which I do in this case, and I do it anyway, whether right. I was in the cigar business or not. 
And the second thing is you want your product to be as good as it could possibly be. Right. You know, and it, I mean, honestly, whether it's cigars or whether it's for us in, in the arts that we're presenting, same thing. We want you to leave saying, wow, like this past weekend at Oz Arts, we had a, um, a Ukrainian band play. Oh, wow. And they were a combination of like folk music meets alt rock. Oh, that's meets, interesting. Yeah, meets huh. kind of uh, beautiful visuals behind it. But it was excellent. And people left there. We had like, you know, our, and this was our, again, our converted distribution warehouse. Right. Generally, we'll have like 300 people. We have seating risers. We had 600 people there because wow. we had, I mean, right. And, and it was people left there saying, wow. And we want the same thing with the cigars. We want people when they smoke them to say, wow, that exceeded my expectations. Then that's victory. Well, Tim, I mean, as you can tell, I've said wow several times in this interview. So even even just in your personality and, and your story and what you're bringing back to this industry, I'm not going to say you've exceeded my expectations, because, <laughs> but you have definitely nailed them. So uh, one last question for you that sure. I, I need. This is more of a private joke between me and my uh, and my friend and his wife. Do you know how to make butt egg? Burek? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I do, actually. Can, can you explain, like, can you really quickly, if you had to explain so to somebody? So you have to first go and buy uh, phyllo dough, which mm -hmm. is a very thin dough that you can find pre-made in the frozen section of your grocery store. And uh, then you have that, you lay that out, you have to, uh, I believe, I'm, I'm going from memory, heat some butter and put some butter on the kind of, with a spoon, on top of the burek once you lay it, lay it over a, uh, maybe a sheet pan. Mm -hmm with some you know, wax paper below it so it doesn't stick. And then uh, you put some cheese in there. The cheese can be feta cheese. Sometimes my mother would use cottage cheese, honestly, with yeah. dill. Um, and then you have to, you, then you wrap them. You can wrap them like a cigar. You can wrap them in a triangular manner. You put some parsley in there too. And then, and then you cook it in an oven. I forgot what you, you bake it. I forget what, what temperature you bake it at. And in essence, that's how you make burek. Now, sometimes people can put, um, uh, ground uh, uh, ground beef in them mm -hmm. too. So, so that's how you, that's how you make it. I know that sounds like a really weird question, but this has been an ongoing joke since he has been dating and now uh, married uh, his wife. That I ask him every time I see him, like, hey, how do you make budding again? And he gets like annoyed. And even though I, I do it as a joke, he's like, all right, you take the feel of dough and you wrap it, and like. Two weeks later, I'll be like, hey, that buddy, how do you make that again? And he just, so he's going to absolutely love that clip. No, but, but it's uh, good because I, I got into like cooking right mm -hmm. before the pandemic because. Good time to get into cooking. Because I thought it was a good way that I could create something where I could bring my family together right. in the evenings. And uh, a lot of what you do with the spices when you cook, or the combinations, the chemistry is also very parallel to cigars. Absolutely. And I mentioned this to Ernesto and he said, no, you're right, it's like cooking. You have to know what spices you're working with. Right. So when we went down to Dominican with Ernesto, I said, I want to try each one of the leaves that you have, that you use a lot, and I want to get a sense of what they each taste like on their own. And I took notes, but the notes that I took were more like akin to spices. Right. You know, this one tastes more like brown spices like the cinnamon or sweeter brown cinnamon nutmeg cumin that kind of, this one is more peppery this one makes you salivate mm. so i mean a cooking analogy yeah. that you brought up is you know appropriate yeah because then when you know when and that's that's can be the downfall of some cigars is you know i, I know a lot of people love using you know lejero now um it's been I mean, it's been popular for a while mm. but it's it's like using 
red pepper or, you know, one of those ingredients where like, you know, you just need a little bit. If you put too much in, it will ruin the dish. You know, you can put a decent amount of garlic in anything and it'll always be all right. But if you put too much, you know, whatever in it, if you put too much red chili pepper flakes, yeah, yeah, yeah. you can ruin a dish. So when you, it really is important to kind of understand each tobacco individually and be like, all yeah. right, I can have mostly be this, but I can put in the tiniest bit of this and it'll give it that little essence I want. But if I were to split that half and half, the cigar would be ruined. It yeah. is it is a meticulous process. Um, That's and the fun of it. it, 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 it I, I got to do like a fake blending one time at the Tobacco Lara uh, de Garcia factory in the DR. It is it is a lot of fun. My cigar looked terrible. But it tasted <laughs> great. It tasted great. Yeah. Tim, thank you so much for joining no, us. Thank this has you. been, this this has been awesome. Guys, make sure you're looking out for Oz Family Cigars, part of the Crown Heads family. I would say the crown jewel of the Crown Heads family. <laughs> Um, and you guys started a podcast. Um, I wonder where you guys got yeah. that idea from. It's called Oz Heads. The Oz yeah. Heads, uh, yeah. where I'm sure you regale people with your with your amazing tales. And then there's another guy there also. Um, <laughs> so make sure to check that out. But Oz family, a lot of great stuff coming from you guys. And welcome back. Thank welcome you back very to the much. Thanks for, thanks for your pleasure. time and interview. Absolute pleasure. Guys, thank you very much for listening. Make sure to comment, like, and subscribe. And as always, keep them lit. <laughs>